Um, we are in Psalm 16. I think it's interesting. A psalm is very easy for someone like myself who's just preaching for uh, one week. Instead of having a series, it's great to just have an enclosed unit. Psalm 16, if you are not familiar with it, is a precious, precious psalm. What type of psalm is this? Um, There's a lot of different categories that you can fit psalms into. There are psalms of lament, psalms of uh, rejoicing, psalms of um, trust. Um, And this one, I would say, would fall into the category, or it's often categorized in uh, the psalms of confidence. Uh, There are many different possibilities of what this psalm could be, but primarily I do see it as a psalm of confidence. But there's more to it than that. I don't think that we can allow um, something as so rich and fruitful as a psalm to only be categorized in one area. Psalm 16 is also a psalm of great joy. Great great joy in life. This is a life-giving and preserving and joyful psalm. I would say this is a psalm that goes hand-in-hand with Psalm 23. If Psalm 23 shows us our shepherd, I'd like to present to you Psalm 16, where we get to behold the pasture that our shepherd brings us to. So with that, let's read the word of God. Psalm 16, a miktam of David. Keep me, O God. For I take refuge in you. O my soul, you have said to Yahweh, You are my Lord. I have no good without you. As for the saints who are in the earth, they are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The pains of those who have bartered for another God, they will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. Yahweh is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not forsake my soul to Sheol. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. This is the word of God. Bow with me. Our Father, thank you for this beautiful psalm. It is a song that we may meditate on. We might behold your glory through this psalm. We might see your pastor, Lord. Help us to behold your word. Open our eyes that we might behold wonderful things in your word. And Lord, give us confidence in you. Confidence now, based on the confidence that we have in Christ and what he has accomplished on the cross on our our behalf, Lord. Give us confidence for the future. Lord, you are good and you are are our shepherd, Lord. So help us now. Help us to meditate on this word, Lord. Help it to bear down upon our lives and lift us up out of our own sorrow and trials, Lord. You are good. And you are beautiful to us, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Christ is risen. Amen. Wow, it's not even Easter Sunday. Christ is risen, and he is risen indeed. This psalm points us forward to the crescendo in verse 10 of the resurrection of the Messiah. This is a beautiful psalm. This is our hope. 
This is where all of our hope as Christians come from. You are here today because Jesus is alive. You are here today because Jesus died and rose again. He is alive. And this is what this psalmist, David, as it's claimed in the first verse, a miktam of David, he says, your holy one will not see corruption or undergo decay. This is the hope that David has. But this hope that he has begins now. A miktam of David. This is debated as to what this means. There's not a real consensus over what it actually refers to, but a miktam, uh, some say this is the golden psalm. This is, uh, there are a few psalms with a miktam of David. But this one seems to have uh, a root in the word miktam of inscription. There's also the potentiality of it being a uh, a special song or the meter as what it was played. That's what Calvin thought. Um, however, I think that miktam coming from the root of inscription would probably be best. The idea is write this down. Write it down. Find a pen. Get your notepad. Write it down. Find, find your chisel. Find a stone tablet. Engrave it. Engrave it upon your heart. Remember this. Psalms were created that you might meditate on this, that you might recite it, that you might sing it, that you might bring it into remembrance daily, that you might think on it. I can't tell you how many times I'm walking throughout the day or I'm doing something and a psalm or a song comes to my mind, a tune, a hymn, a melody, and it leads me to worship the Lord. That's what psalms were composed to do. They were composed to bring our mind to the Lord and to the truths that he has for us. Now, in Psalm 16, there are really three convictions that David is rehearsing to himself, three convictions. And in these three convictions that he's rehearsing to himself, he desires to instill in himself confidence and joy. Confidence and joy, both in the present, right now, and in the future. And in these three convictions that David reminds himself of, these are promises that you may also have confidence and joy, deep confidence and joy. And so with that, the three convictions, let's begin in verse 1, verses 1 through 4. David's commitment to God. This is his first conviction that he is rehearsing to himself. It's a miktam. He's reciting it to himself. He's rehearsing it to himself. He's telling himself. Just as in biblical counseling, we say that you're constantly, we give you the word, we put you in the word as we give you something to meditate on that you might remind yourself of truth. Because we as humans are forgetful. The number one command in the Old Testament is what? Remember, remember. Why? Because we forget. We're goldfish. We swim around and we immediately forget. We have no memory. Does anyone know that fact? They swim around the fishbowl and they forget exactly where they were. I don't know how scientists know that, but apparently it's true. But here, he is rehearsing to himself this truth, this conviction, his commitment to God. He has made a commitment to Yahweh. And he appeals to God based on this commitment. Keep me, O God, for or because I take refuge in you. I hide myself in you. I seek refuge in you, God. The word keep me there, it's the idea of tending, protecting, guarding. It's what you do with your garden. You keep your garden. You, it's what you do with your sheep. You tend your lambs. This is the same word there. In, uh, in Genesis, uh, God commands Adam to keep the garden. He commands, uh, he asks, um, or Cain says, am I my brother's keeper? It's the same idea. It's, am I the shepherd over my brother? 
Same thing as what the Lord does for us. He keeps us. It's tending. It's guiding. It's protecting. And he bases it all on his appeal to the fact that I take refuge in you, O God. Now this is, he's appealing to the blessing that is found in Psalm 2. There's a blessing to those who are found in God's way. Psalm 2, verse 12, the very end. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Same word here. He's saying, Lord, I have, I have found refuge in you, therefore keep me. You said there's a blessing. I want that blessing. Keep me. God, keep me. I need you. And then he says, O my soul, you have said to Yahweh. He's, he's telling himself, soul, self, you have said this to God. You have said this to the covenant-keeping God of the fathers of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You have said this to him. You have declared this to him. I, you committed yourself to him. Now it says, O my soul, O my soul, I'm telling myself, you have said to Yahweh. This isn't, if you see in the NAS or the LSB or I don't know what version you have, but in mine it's in italics because it's saying it's not actually there, but it's implied by uh, the second person singular uh, feminine of the Hebrew saying you, that's a feminine. That's a feminine second person singular saying you. Now why would that be feminine? Well, the word for soul is feminine. He's bringing that in, especially as we see later, soul is brought up in verse 10. So he's keeping it to himself. He's saying, soul, you have said to Yahweh, you are my Lord. You are my master. He's reminding himself of this commitment that he is, I have set him as my master. I do his bidding. I do his will. Just as Jesus himself said, I do the will of my father who sent me. So David says, I am here for him. He's reminding himself of whose slave is he? He is the Lord's. David might be king, but he submits to the king of kings. And then he says, I have no good without you. This is not a moral good. This is not an intrinsic ethical good. Right here, it's actually, I have no good thing apart from you. Not one good thing do I have in this life or have I ever received, have I ever had apart from you, oh God. And he is reminding himself of this. Whether this is written in the palace or on the run in the caves of Adullam, it doesn't matter where he's writing it. He recognizes exactly what is the truth, that Yahweh is his Lord. He submits to him. And that no good thing has he ever possessed apart from him. And I, I bring this to you because as he commits himself to God's care, he's instilling confidence. He's reminding himself of these truths because he knows who his God is. He knows that his God is taking care of him. He's tending him. He is his shepherd. David wrote Psalm 16, and Psalm 23, he knows exactly who his shepherd is, and he has entrusted himself to Yahweh, to his care. I think that what's interesting as believers is that we're very quick to forget who our Lord is. We're very quick to forget where we find comfort. We find good hearts. We go home and we enjoy the amenities of our homes. And little do we remember to thank the Lord. Little do we remember to recognize that this good thing I have right now is from you, God. We're very quick to forget this. And yet David is, recognizes that himself. He has a kingdom. Or he had a kingdom. And he recognizes that the only reason he had it was because it was from the Lord, and he's committing himself. He's telling himself, don't get above yourself. Don't go where you shouldn't be. You didn't, you didn't earn this kingdom, David. The Lord gave it to you. I have no good thing without you. Verse 3 and 4. He also is reminding himself of the commitment to God, first in his care in verses 1 and 2, and now he's, he's reminding himself of his commitment to God and his people to keep the right company. As for the saints 
who are in the earth. They are the majestic ones in whom is all my delight. The saints. That's you. That's me. The holy ones. The ones whom the Lord has declared as holy. You are holy in Christ. When you are in Christ, you are holy. And here, he says, saints on the earth, they are the majestic ones. Majestic, victorious, grand, mighty. That's what this word means. It's saying, it's in them that all glory in the earth is found. In the saints. All might and power is in them. They are the beautiful ones. And it's in them where I find all my delight. All my delight. Now this is set against verse 4. The pains of those who have bartered for another God will be multiplied. I shall not pour out their drink offerings of blood, nor will I take their names upon my lips. So he has the saints and the ain'ts. He has the saints, the believers, those who trust in God and commit their ways to him. And then he has those who go off after their own gods, another. And he's reminding himself of where victory is found. Hence why he refers to them as the majestic ones. They're the ones who are mighty. They are the ones who I love. The pains, the sorrows, really, the physical pains, the um, emotional pains, they will increase. They will only multiply. They will be made many. He has to remind himself where the victory lies. Is it with these people or with these people? Because these people seem pretty victorious right now. These people over here, the world, those who they seem pretty happy right now. They seem to be doing very well with themselves. And what they have to offer seems to be very appealing. But here we have a delight, an attitude of delight. He's committed himself to these people. He says, the saints, the majestic ones, they are beautiful to me. They are pleasurable to me. It's an intrinsic beauty. It's something that they themselves are beautiful. Therefore, I love them. Now, that's consistent with the New Testament. First John uh, chapter 4, verses 20 and 21. It's all about love for one another. This is exactly what uh, the greatest commandment and the second one that is like it, love the Lord God with all your heart. And the second one being like it, love your neighbor. And this is exactly what he's finding pleasure in. He's saying, I love these ones, the ones who have committed themselves to you. We know that that's true. We know that you, I, have something, I have something more in common with you than I do with my unbelieving sisters. I think of Jesus. They've gone off astray. They have gone after another, whether that's uh, the God of another religion or the God of this world. Either way, they've gone off to their own. But I have more in common with you, whether I've met you personally or not, than I do with my own flesh and blood. That is the reality that David sets his mind on. His own son wanted to kill him. That his father-in-law, Saul, wanted to kill him. Where is his delight? It's in the saints, those who have committed themselves to the Lord. But again, he reminds himself of these others, those who have committed themselves to another. It says that they bartered for another. Bartered. I don't know what your translation says, but the idea here is that they, the other usage of this word, this is very rare, it's the idea of paying a dowry or giving a large sum of money, a whole livelihood for something else, whether it be a bride or, in this case, another god. They have given their life savings, everything that supports them for this. They've given their all for it. And he commits himself. He has to remind himself the truth. He's rehearsing the truth. It's in the saints where my delight is found. And it's in these people who commit themselves to another God. Their sorrows will be multiplied. It will be. 
I have to remind myself of that truth because it seems so pleasurable in the moment. As Richard Sibb says in uh, The Glorious Feast of the Gospel, that the devil loves to tempt us with little dainties. That's little candies. He likes to put little candies in front of us. It promises us, it promises us instant gratification and pleasure. You know, Julie and I have this little box of candies where we hide our chocolate so that when we're cutting out sugar, we know exactly where it is and we know exactly what not to touch. But every night after a meal, I go over to the chocolate. And me and, and all my self-control that I've been preparing myself for for years, I say, how could you? How could you even ask? Just bring it. I don't <laughs> Don't ask, just bring. That's what I say. The little dainties, the little candies, they're so pleasurable. Oh, I just need that. I heard an amen, I think. Uh, They're so good. But that's exactly what the devil likes to put in front of us. It's pleasurable. There's some sort of instant gratification. It tastes good. I like it. And that's exactly what the devil uses in everyday life. He gives you something that promises instant gratification and lies to you saying, this is good. This is good. This is better. Take it. That other joy you have, it's far off. It's not to be found. I have something right in front of your eyes. Take it. And that's what Richard Sibb says in his book is he's saying, fill up with Christ. Eat the meal, the feast of Christ. You know when I say no to sweets is when I literally cannot fit another thing in my stomach. Because I have tasted the feast and I thought it was good and I filled up on it. And that's exactly what Richard Sibbs says is he says, follow Christ and be filled up with the full feast of Christ. Know him, know his promises, know the pleasures that come with being in Christ. Know that with your heart. Master the full feast of Christ. Know what it is. Walk through Ephesians 1. Walk through Ephesians 2. Know the full meat. Know the side dishes. That being that you were chosen before the foundation of the world. That you were adopted. That the robes of your sin were washed in the blood of Christ. They are white. Be satisfied in Christ. And that's exactly what David is doing. He's recognizing there is no pleasure. There is no pleasure with these ones. Rather, there is pleasure and delight in God's people. Not only do I commit myself to God, verses 1 and 2, but I commit myself to his people. And I don't even consider these other ones, those who pour out their drink offerings of blood. Look at how gruesome that is. This is the only time that it's a drink offering of blood. It's that they would pour out Unto um, unto Baal, they would dump out their blood into the ground. They would they would uh, typically it would be a drink offering, but here specifically it is blood. It's cultish, and that's exactly what the world has. It's cultish. It's wicked. They go after another god. They will do anything to serve their god, and he's saying, "I won't do it. I won't be found there." nor will I even take their names upon my lips. He's referring to the God that mentioned them. Now, we don't really have the little statuettes that they did back in their time. Maybe we do. Maybe you're really into collecting action figures. But the point of this is saying that gods are found in many different shapes, sizes, forms, and mediums. I don't know what you do with your phone. I don't know what you do with your family. I don't do with Affections, but if you set your affections upon anyone other than the Lord and set that as the most important thing in your life, it will show. It will show. If I, if I cut you and you bleed, we know that you're human, okay? If I cut you and you bleed, Scripture, I know who you love. It's the Lord. If I talk to you, sure. my trials with you, and you want to pray with me, I know who you love. If I ask you, how are you doing? And they say, work sucks. I know what you love and hate. If you say that the greatest thing that you've been thinking about all week is football, and I'm talking about myself right now, then it shows what you love, what you spend your time doing. And here he's saying, I'm not even going to take their names on this. Because I know how tempting it is. 
This is the same idea of Jesus saying, cut off your hand and throw it from you if it causes you to stumble. Don't even mention it. I'm not even going to look at it. You need to know. You need to know what draws your heart away from the Lord. And David knew exactly what drew his heart from the Lord. Look at Daniel with me. Go to Daniel chapter 1. I want to see a good picture of of everything that we just saw in verses 1 through 4. Daniel chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now, obviously, uh, Judah, or many of the um, Israelites, had been taken off into captivity by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, verse 8, he set his heart. He set in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel loving kindness and compassion before the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please, test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed before you and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food. Compare, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So we listened to them in this matter, and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that their appearance was better, that they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice and kept giving them vegetables. And as for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and insight in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. Then at the end of the days, which, which the king had spoken of, for bringing them in, the commander of the officials brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king talked with them, and out of them all, not, not one was found in Mishael, and Azariah. So they stood in service before the king. They had committed themselves to the Lord. What do you think Daniel and his friends understood well? Their commitment to the Lord, their commitment to their people. They did not want to defile themselves before the Lord because the Lord's opinion of man is much more important than those who have no business saying anything about you. Only the Lord has power to judge and to save. Daniel and his friends knew this. He had committed himself to the Lord and to his people. And in in these verses, uh, verse 19... And the king talked with him, and Amon one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. There were other young boys from Israel. There were others who did not commit themselves to the Lord or to his people. This is a commitment that David has set before himself, that he reminds himself, that he rehearses. He has etched on Daniel. He set in his heart. He knew exactly what to do with a miktam. So we have, as he builds this, there is confidence. I have refuge in the Lord, and I am with his people. And then you have his inheritance, verses 5 and 6. Yahweh is my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my inheritance is is beautiful to me. Look at what he is. He is just basking in the reality of the pasture. He knows his inheritance. He's calling upon the Levitical promise. There was inheritance, lines being drawn, saying this gets this land, this tribe gets this land. But to the tribe of Levi, your inheritance is Yahweh. So David calls himself to that understanding and recognizes, I don't need any land ultimately to be satisfied. Yes, there's land promised to me as the king, but I don't even need that. I just want the Lord. 
I just want Yahweh. He is the portion of my inheritance. Not just the inheritance itself. He is the fullness of it. He is the substance of it. That's exactly why he says he is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. That means he also brings about the joy of the inheritance. My cup, that's the idea of, of, of drink, of, of uh, enjoyment at a meal. That's often used throughout the Old Testament to show that God finds joy. And then, verse 6, first, in verse 5, we have the substance of the inheritance and you have the quality. David takes a moment to examine how good is this inheritance? How good is it? The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. The idea that the drawing out of where my inheritance is, it's fallen to me in beautiful places. Pleasing. It's good. It's precious. Daniel, uh, David here takes this and says that Yahweh being the inheritance in my cup, it's precious. He's examined it. He's taking heart to it. Indeed, my inheritance is beautiful to me. It's beautiful. How often do you just look at the Lord and his promises and say, this is beautiful to me. Again, this is something you're supposed to meditate on. We read this as far as very much data. We're data consumed. We like to see, okay, this says this, this says this, this says this. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? Okay, I got it. No. Has it washed over you? Do you know this? Do you find him to be beautiful? This is showing us a worldview and a passion that we are to take on ourselves. Is Yahweh beautiful to you? To David, Yahweh is beautiful to him. And in that, there is confidence. You support my lot. You protect it. Not only do you give yourself to me, but you also protect the inheritance that you have promised me. There's security in him. He has given himself to us. No inheritance is ever earned. Inheritance, an inheritance is only ever bestowed on someone. You can only be a recipient of that inheritance. And then beyond that, what happens? Will someone take it? He says, no, you uphold it. You'll keep it out of harm's reach. No one can take it. Similar to the promises of Jesus that no one can snatch us out of his hand or the Father's hand. If you are Christ, your inheritance is secure. And that's precious. Does that not make you rejoice to know that your inheritance is God himself? What else could I want? What else could you possibly want? And that's exactly what David is telling himself. He's saying, Yahweh is my inheritance. Not this kingdom. Not this land. Yahweh is my joy. He's my cup. He's precious to me. He's beautiful to me. And now, as we've seen the first two convictions in verses 1 through 4 and then 5 and 6, his commitment to God, his inheritance, he's reminding these truths, it's bringing about confidence and joy. And finally, verses 7 through 11, his life with God, David's life with God. I will bless Yahweh who has counseled me. Indeed, my mind instructs me in the night. I have set Yahweh continually before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. Now, I will bless Yahweh. I will magnify him. He who has counseled me, he who has instructed me. Not only do I have my inheritance, but I also now know how to live in light of my inheritance. He has counseled me. And then here he is saying, indeed, my mind instructs me, or my gut, that's the Hebrew um, understanding or the word that they would use to say my mind, the innermost part of me. It instructs me in the night. This is exactly what we see in Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of Yahweh. And in his law, he meditates day and night. How often do thought of what you had learned of the Lord? How often do you go to bed without a 
prayer to him, without speaking to him. Brother and sister, do you know that God created you to speak with him? So he sits in bed and he's reminding these truths again and again. Yahweh has counseled me. I will bless him. He has taught me in his word. I will follow him. I have set Yahweh continually before me. My mind is on him. My eyes are on him. I don't want to say even the names of those gods that others follow. I, want, I don't want my eyes to look over there. I want my eyes on him. I have set him before me. Notice that he has set him. It's not just suddenly is a before him. It's that he has set him before him that he might follow him. You have to set him before yourself if you are going to follow him. You're not just going to magically follow him. But as he does this, he guides you. He guides you with his word, and you follow him. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. That's the promise of the end of verse uh, 5 of chapter 15 of the Psalm, Psalm 15. He who does these things will never be shaken. Psalm 15 is a, is a question. O Yahweh, who may sojourn in your tent, who may be in your presence? who may dwell on your holy mountain. And he goes through, he describes a man of integrity and the promise at the end is security. He will never be in his way. Bottom of verse eight, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Notice as you are being counseled by his word, as you live your life in light of his law, you will find stability. You will find safety. You will not be tottered over. Therefore, verse 9, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. Do you not just stop to meditate and say, my heart is glad on this. Because I am secure, I am happy. I am joyful. This is good. This brings a smile to my face. My glory rejoices. And then he says, Inwardly, my heart is glad. Outwardly, my flesh also will dwell securely. One, I will not be shaken in my heart. And then my flesh will also dwell securely. This idea of dwelling securely is God's promise. Again, back in uh, verse 1 of chapter, or of Psalm 15. Who may dwell on your holy mountain? And then he gives the answer. It's those who follow his word and walk with integrity in their lives. So now he's saying, my flesh will also dwell securely. The here and the now. My life right now can dwell securely. I trust, I entrust the Lord with my life. But then, verse 10, do not forsake my soul. The idea of death. You will not leave me. You will not abandon me to death. Death is not the end. What is the end of an inheritance? Your death. Once you are given something, an inheritance, the only thing that can take it away is death. And David is saying, not even death will separate me from being with Yahweh and taking pleasure in his inheritance that is Yahweh himself. Not even death will separate me. That's my soul. But what about my flesh? You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. You will not give your Holy One over to see corruption. In Acts 2, Peter quotes from this passage to speak of the the Messiah. He says that David wrote of the Messiah saying, and he quotes verses 8 through 11 here, you will not give your Holy One. Literally, it's your Hesed one. I don't know if you know this word, but it's probably one of, it's like seminary students' favorite Hebrew word of all time uh, because it's the only one they can remember. Um, but it's the idea of your loved one, your beloved one, your covenant loved one. This is one whom God has covenanted love to keep and set apart as his. Now, David obviously receives that uh, covenant. He experiences God's loving kindness. It's typically translated as loving kindness or steadfast love. However, he's saying that this one is the object of God's hesed love. 
You will not give your beloved one over to see corruption or to undergo decay. This is a bodily decay. This is a bodily corruption that he's referring to. His body will not stay in the tomb. The bodily resurrection is why we're here today. We don't believe in just a spiritual resurrection. We believe in a real resurrection. So David is saying, Lord, I believe you. I trust you. My heart will dwell securely. But what about my flesh? You have made me a whole man. You didn't just give me a spirit. You gave me a body. Will I get to live in your presence? Not just spiritually, but physically? Will I get to experience you and all the senses that you've given me? And he says, yes. Because one, your beloved one, will not be over to see corruption. His hope is set forward. He knows in 2 Samuel 7 that there is a blessed and promised seed that will proceed from him and inherit the kingdom and will fulfill all promises. And that is Jesus. This is prophetic. David knows exactly who he's speaking of. The Holy Blessed One who will accomplish this. And because of him, I will dwell securely, both in soul and body. And now verse 11. This is his restatement of everything. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is there are pleasures forever. Now when he says you will make known to me the path of life, you will teach me the path of life, the way of life. This is a very unique phrase, and it's actually a proverbial phrase. You won't find it anywhere else specifically uh, except for in the Proverbs. It's the path of life. You will make known to me the path of life. Uh, They do not walk in the path of life or the path leading to life or the way leading to life. Um, In Proverbs 10, verse 17, if you want to look there with me, I'll show you some of this. It's a proverbial term. Chapter, Proverbs chapter 10, verse 17. He is on the path of life who keeps discipline, but he who forsakes reproof makes himself wander about. That's wisdom. Chapter 12, verse 28. In the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death. The reason I bring up that it's a proverbial term or phrase is because this is the here and now. This isn't necessarily what we quote from John when Jesus says, I'm the way. This isn't what he's referring to here. He's actually learning on how to live now, how to take the blessed inheritance now, how to live in light of that inheritance. You will make known to me, just as you have counseled me in verse 7, the path of life. You will help me to learn how to live within this inheritance. Now, the book of Proverbs is a book that teaches one how to live this life according to God's law skillfully. That's what wisdom is. It's doing it according to creation, how God created you to live and walk. So God, in this pasture that you have been brought to, in this inheritance, this allotment, God himself, we will know how to walk in light of that. And in your presence, this is, the, this is the promise, this is the joy, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. I think it's interesting that Jesus, as he was leaving the disciples, he told them that I leave for a time, but your joy will be full. And it's in his departure from them that they are most likely weeping, saying, don't leave us, Jesus, to where do you go? And he says, it is actually better for you to, if I were to leave you, and when I return, speaking of his resurrection, your joy can never be taken away from you. In the same way, that's exactly what David is saying. Because of the reality of the resurrection, in your presence of joy, because I know where I'm going. I'm going to your presence. I will dwell with you on your holy mountain. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. What Satan offers, those little dainties, they're here and gone. 
Don't lie about it. They are pleasurable for a moment. But let's remind ourselves, in God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. Do you know that? Do you know that in God's right hand, there are pleasures forever? In his presence is fullness of joy. Do you know that? Do you believe that? Do you rejoice when you hear that? I often wonder, as we're approaching Reformation Day, that's tomorrow, uh, it's 505 years, yeah, 505 years since Martin Luther nailed the 95 Theses on the door of the Catholic Church. And I always wondered, how did he have that courage? How did he have that courage to write those? I mean, just imagine, he's penning it today. He had to have been writing it for, I don't know how many months or weeks or days before, but you have to imagine that the day before, that would be right now, 505 years ago, on this day, he was making his last finishing touches and thinking thinking about what he's about to do. And, and he'd seen St. Peter's Basilica being constructed. He had seen the, the might of Rome and who he was about to go against. How did he do it? How did he We know one truth, that the Lord is my refuge, that you will support my lot. My inheritance isn't some great religion. My inheritance is Yahweh. And with him, there's fullness of joy, pleasures forever. Go back to Daniel. I want to show you Daniel not only knew of the pleasures that are in his right hand right then and there uh, at the beginning of his life, but even at the end. Chapter 12. Daniel chapter 12. Verse 2. This is uh, referring to the last days. God is revealing his plan to Daniel. Daniel was not ignorant of the resurrection. Verse 2. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. And then verse 13. Well, he promises blessing to those who, who remain and who and find confidence in the Lord. But verse 13, But as for you, go your way to the end. Then you will enter into your rest and stand again for your allotted portion at the end of the days. Your inheritance, it's waiting for you. Your portion, he is waiting for you. This is the joy set before him. The same reason Christ went to the cross with joy, knowing exactly what rested before him. That's what gave Luther confidence. I want to share with you another reformer, an English reformer. The story of him written, recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. John Lambert. As recorded in in Fox's Book of Martyrs, he says of John Lambert, On the day appointed for Lambert to suffer, he was brought out of the prison at 8 o'clock in the morning. Being warned that the hour of his death was at hand, Lambert was brought out of the chamber into the hall. He saluted the gentlemen present and sat down to breakfast with them, showing neither sat nor When breakfast was finished, he was carried straight to the place of execution at Smithfield in England. According to records, the manner of his death was truly horrible. Of course, he was chained to a stake, and a pyre was set underneath him. It was blazing, and after his legs were consumed, and just a little fire, two guards approached him, and pierced him with a spear mixed with a battle axe, and lit him up as far as the chain would reach. And while he was dangling there without legs and with his singed hands, he raised those half-consumed hands and cried out to the people listening, these words, none but Christ, none but Christ. And so being let down again from their halberts, he fell into the fire and there his life ended. There he entered glory and one day that singed burnt body will rise from the dead and he will live in body and spirit with God, his inheritance. He will live with his shepherd 
in his pasture. The inheritance is God. Our shepherd is God. Know that you will be kept if you put your trust in him. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know your shepherd. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know this great inheritance. Christians, do you have joy? We should be the most joyous people. We know what's set before us. It's God himself. This is a psalm that should bring us to praise him, to sing praises. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. Let's pray. Oh God, how wonderful this is. How wonderful is your pasture, the inheritance that you've given us. It is not just a land, God. It is your presence. It is you. You are more precious to us than the little dainties that Satan puts in front of us. Though it promises us pleasure in the moment, there is death behind it. Lord, we know there is life in obedience to you. And there is joy in obedience to you. Lord, please help us. Help us to walk obediently together with the saints because we love one another. Help us to, help us to abhor the things of this world. Help us to avoid the, the things that draw our minds away. Help us to avoid the crowds that take our hearts away from you, God. Why? Because of our inheritance. Why? Because of our inheritance. It's you. You alone. Lord, thank you so much for this wonderful passage of Scripture. Please bring it into our remembrance. Please, Lord, do not let us forget. Help us to remember. Lord, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is victorious, that he is alive right now at your right hand, where there are pleasures forever. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.